Sin Carriers, a West Side Fairy Tales story, contains violent, graphic, and often unsettling content. Further, it takes place in a period of American history where certain now unacceptable outlooks were commonplace. In the spirit of pulling back the lid on the mythos of the American Wild West, many of these outlooks are espoused by various characters, whether outright or through their internal dialogue. These characters' thoughts and actions are their own, and not those of the author. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Sin Carriers, our travelers arrived in a mysterious town in the desert which felt haunted by its residents rather than inhabited by them. Sue admired how nice she looked, dressed up in Moira's clothes as they prepared to travel to the mansion of a mysterious Lord Belial under his invitation. Vasily, crushingly nervous, offered Moira a cleverly modified handkerchief to cover the freshly stitched wound on her cheek, which she graciously accepted. In town, Elam reminisced about riding the horse east from the Pinkerton ambush as he helped Mildover scout shooting locations as a precaution against another attack. He instead found a collection of racist Confederate antiques that threatened to surface some of his darker memories. Vicky turned in the security car's laundry for washing and managed to make a sale as he did so, though an odd figure soon arrived to sour the mood. An emissary from the enigmatic Lord Belial who was aware of Vicky's employer and wished to extend his master's invitation to the night's ball. Back on the train, Gatto found Wickless and Coakley planning a theft while the train was unoccupied and dissuaded them from proceeding. Later, at the local pub, Garvey and most of the other drivers were taking the night off with some drinks. Garvey, drinking alone, was approached by a woman who would do almost anything to flee some unspoken danger in the town. She put her faith in the wrong man, however, and soon paid the price. The first fatality in a long and deadly night. On this episode, Tolliver can't seem to stop embarrassing himself. We are introduced to the dangerous and enigmatic Lord Belial, who holds sway over this town and whose motives are wholly unknown. Ducky and Gatto have a chat. The writer approaches in the company of great, foul-colored clouds. Wickless finds more than he bargained for when he goes looking for a restroom. And Vicky arrives at a party he would have rather not been invited to. What horrors and wonders lay inside Belial's mansion? Will our travelers have the fortitude, or even the desire, to resist what nightmares may come? You may find the answers to these questions and more on this, the ninth episode of Sin Carriers, Party. Tolliver could barely breathe in the stifling heat of the carriage. Despite the lateness of the hour, the sun lingered at the terrestrial threshold. Every second spent in this rattling horse car suffocated him. Not just the hotness of the compartment, nor the closeness, but the fact his co-passengers seemed amenable to the temperatures. They sat in silence, or, in the case of the Russian, spent their time cleaning a pair of gold-rimmed reading glasses. Do you even use those? Tolliver asked, having to clear his throat twice. The Russian shuddered and ignored him, which he was beginning to do with some regularity. Common manners simply weren't enough for these aristocratic European types, it seemed. Tolliver let his eyes wander the carriage, passing over his lovely daughter and resting on the surprisingly tempting body of the rough woman, Sue. Deprived of her thankless men's clothes, she seemed now made for male attentions. 
enough she could benefit from them if her manners ever caught up to her looks. Something in her posture remained wrong, aggressive. Even in his daughter's old riding boots, she seemed to have a boxer's poise, as though she might reach out to strike him at the slightest provocation. And he did mean him in his thoughts, Tolliver Loeb. The young woman had taken one look at him after disembarking the train for the provided carriage and had scoffed. She'd made a show, in Tolliver's estimation at least, of ignoring him since then. The fine, slender red hat she'd borrowed from Moira, from his daughter, always tipped just below her eyes when she might be looking at him. A double-edged sword for what she thought that accomplished, for Tolliver could now stare down the front of her dress without her notice. He availed himself of this little pleasure now, taking in the round swells of her exposed breasts, the light stippling of goose flesh on her brown skin, and the fine little hairs being pressed down by a rolling bead of her sweat. It clung to her in a way he found most enticing, pressed fully against her and all else of itself given to the wind. Left there, it would wobble and slide at its wand, driven only by God's universal physics. If she were naked, and this drop laid on her stomach, it could shrivel and die there, becoming less and less of itself until only its most essential salts remained, mineral presence indiscernible from the woman herself. Another drop of sweat rose, thickened, and slid across her breast to hover just above the furled red lace. His brother had bought that dress and sent it west with undue urgency, first-class mail straight to Moira. Tolliver wondered how this woman could just sit there, her breast naked to the wind, feeling that drop of sweat, and not want to touch it. Did it itch? Moira had been curious as to the fit and her uncle's intentions. There was no question as to her measurements. She had her own dress fitter in Pittsburgh he could look up. So why was this dress tailored to a body so unlike hers? One with brown skin draped with such fine lace as God had ever made. Fine golden hair and the gemwork saltiness of a hot day. Along her wrists, clean to the eye beneath the thicker layers of silk, many little images embroidered in a line. Hands and suns and moons and stars. All of them, the five, together and apart at the base of her rough hands. But most of all, most presently, the hands themselves. Hands of sticks right there where anyone could see if they only just looked. No less evident than a rolling bead of sweat caught on her collarbone. Lord, how it itched her. She shifted in her seat. Tolliver reached out and caressed it away with his thumb. No resistance, but also no eyes. Only her soft lips working open in a quiet gasp. He pressed his entire hand to her willing throat, squeezed. She moaned, arched her back against the carriage seat. All of them, angels. All of them, skin to swell and burst and swim inside of. Eat them, become them, change them to be as they must. For you, for us, swallow her. Tolliver ripped open the fine red dress and found where the sweat went. He buried his face in the darkness between his harlot's breasts, sucked at them, and then pulled himself deeper by his own suction. 
into the black and red. Awake now. He let the greater heat of this place fall on him and burn away his clothes, his skin. It stripped him naked of all but his barest need. Then she sat before him, reposed in wood, body sculpted to greater perfection than any base and animal process could achieve. And she opened her legs to him. The boards there split wide and he saw through to the great egg beyond, to the feathers and glowing eyes. Oh, Lord! Tolliver gasped, patting his brow and quickly adjusting his trousers. Only Moira looked at him, her face openly worried. Father? She asked, leaning across the cabin. The horses slowed and turned. Moira tried to touch him and he slapped her hand. Really, Moira? He said, looking out the window. The young woman looked at her hand and then at the Russian, who shrugged and busied himself with the glasses. Tolliver tried to surreptitiously adjust the slimy mess which now befouled the inside of his trousers, hoping beyond hope his emissions wouldn't soak through. He managed to glance at Sue, who hadn't moved an inch, before he could lose himself in the sweat dappling her skin, however. The carriage jolted to a stop and startled the young woman. Lord Almighty! She shouted, catching her hat as it rolled off her head and yawning with just the side of her mouth. How do you all got horse cards to stay comfortable? She arched her back in a stretch that produced several loud pops. Tolliver couldn't help himself but take in her chest, and this time she caught him looking and laughed. Then she winked at him, and his collar went hot. What is it? Moira asked. She'd been looking out the window at the distant shapes of the train and seemed herself only seconds fresh from sleep. Her question made Sue chuckle some more. Nothing, she replied, fitting her hat on her head and tilting it in the direction of the door. You won't get that for a lady part. Again, her eyes were hidden from Tolliver, but only for a moment. Her left eye flashed out through the lace for just a second, hot as a handful of buckshot and fully dire in its intent. Tolliver cleared his throat and opened the carriage, thanking every god he knew for cool air and distance from that harpy. His godforsaken trousers bit into his flesh and jiggled it over the bone when he tried to adjust himself out of her view. His bits were thickly gelled, and a shiftless whore like her would likely know it with half a glance. My word, Tolliver, Belial said. Tolliver wished for death. The man stood only a few meters away, legs naked below the knee save sandals, His skin was no less bronze than the brass fittings on the carriage, and draped in airy linen embroidered along the hem with his master's symbol. The eye-like blind horizons seemed to fixate on Tolliver as he righted himself and dotted his forehead with a handkerchief. Mr. Belial, Tolliver said, stepping forward and extending a hand. A jangling glove caught him in the chest, pushing him sharply back from Belial. The man laughed coarsely and adjusted his hair, flipping it back and favoring the world with a look at his long, lightly muscled neck. Tolliver, I wouldn't touch you with a stick. Ah, there she is. Hello, sir, Moira said, dipping into a curtsy and taking Belial's offered hand. 
His dull, indigo eyes seemed to glow as he spun her and wrapped her in compliments. Tolliver's own eyes were on the closest of Belial's two guards, a man with odd proportions and a riveted, one-eyed steel mask. Slanting evening light showed him an eye cupped in tortured flesh behind the metal. Tracings of stitchwork no less odd and scattered than the patchwork white suit the man wore shone darkly against smooth, pinkish skin. The eyeball there rolled toward Tolliver and he moved his attentions elsewhere, quickly finding his daughter a more suitable target. Belial had managed to get between Moira and Tolliver and was teaching her some three-step dance move the girl clearly found absolutely fucking delightful. He wanted to shout at her. Mine, 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 mine. Belial's eyes flashed at Tolliver, almost looking like he might wink. Mine. Oh, we'll teach you all the moves, young lady, Belial said, spinning Moira back into place. Her face was flushed and flecked with perspiration. We've got some night planned for all of you, and I think you'll have just the most wonderful time. Tolliver approached, and this time he wasn't sure if Belial's man had the stones to stop him. As it turned out, Belial himself did, snapping his attention to Tolliver so quickly the fat man felt slapped. You don't dance, do you, Tolliver? He asked, voice soft and hot, cutting. Tolliver grimaced. It had been a long long time since he'd met Belial and the man had laid into his weight then as well, merely to hurt him, as all his father's associates were wont to do. No unkind, unkind words, words for Gulliver. That's, that's father's, father's boy. boy. Mistake. Fat mistake. Fat mistake. Mine. Mine. Not often, Tolliver said, adjusting himself again and not quite meeting the man's gaze. At least I haven't in a long while. Not since. Do you dance? Belial asked the Russian, turning to the man with the same snake-like snap of his neck. The Russian didn't seem put off in the least. Yes, he said, simply. Courtly dances, at least. I'm not sure if they're popular in the Americas. Oh, wonderful, Belial replied, looking around him toward the last of their party. And what about you, miss? Sue had rounded the vehicle and now stood behind Moira, close and quiet. A bloody shadow. The young woman's hat remained tipped toward the ground when Belial addressed her, and Tolliver saw she had a tidy little purse clutched in two hands in front of her hips. Yes, sir, she said in a voice so soft and unassuming Tolliver thought it was somebody else entirely. The posture he'd so disliked had gone as well, leaving just a thin, pretty slip of a girl any other man might assume was hiding in the shadow of her more gregarious friend. Even knowing her true nature, he felt a deep attraction to this new creature. Sweater, tasting salt, down, down, deep. Tolliver shook off a bad chill and turned to look at the train. Had he forgotten something there? Perhaps he needed to sneak out of Belial's awful party at some point to go check. Inside, want, want. Please, come and let me look at you, Belial said. 
Sue hunched her shoulders and stepped closer behind Moira. Only the slightest tilt of his daughter's head told Tolliver the two young women were talking. When Sue finally stepped forward, she seemed so nervous Tolliver almost wanted to give her a hug and escort her back to the carriage. He knew it was all an act, though. It had to be. And what's your name? Belial asked. Sue was all she said. The syllable seemed to rest betwixt the currents of air. It felt as small as she was, standing amongst these steel-faced monsters and this absolute beast of a man hovering over her, but no less present. The sun set in the silence following the giving of her name, and for a moment, the red of her dress and the distant meridian conjoined and made a scarlet cross of each other. A vision given to no one but Tolliver, who suddenly felt crushingly insignificant amongst these events he himself had set in motion. Sweat sliding down down her breast, disappearing 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 inside. inside. He shivered in the moment past. That name means nothing to me, Belial said. Belial made a point of saying, Tolliver saw the man's desire to touch this red-clad woman. Belial was too arrogant for guile, but he stayed his hand all the same. Something passed between them and Sue gave a nod of her head before returning to Moira's side. Moira seemed as nonplussed as Tolliver felt. The Russian looked bored. Hmm. Well, that's it for introductions, Belial said. Everybody's waiting inside, and if you want to know anything about them, I'm sure you'll find it in your hearts to ask. Now, he turned to Tolliver. Compliment me. Tolliver blinked. Go on. Belial knew Tolliver was confused as all hell and seemed to be drinking it up. Behind him, several servants in matching white linen shifts lit the lanterns along the stone bridge leading to his house. It was the only obvious way inside. You have a wonderfully large home, sir, the Russian said, stepping forward and giving a tidy bow. Belial clapped his hands and almost squealed. I've accidentally invited a man of culture, he said. The Russian's invitation had come along with the carriage, giving him little time to prepare, but he had accepted without a second thought. Belial gave him a grandiose bow and gestured toward the front doors, which were being held open by a second pair of the overly tall guardsmen. Please, welcome to my home. Thank you, sir, the Russian said, turning to Tolliver and speaking in a low voice. You are paying him a compliment, literally paying like a toll bridge. It's a very old custom. Belial nodded appreciatively and then gave Tolliver a tilt of his chin. The Russian nodded to Moira and she stepped forward as well. I love your hair, Mr. Belial, she said, stifling a polite giggle with her gloved fingers. Belial grinned and gripped Moira's shoulders. You are just a treat, he said. Once we're finished here, I'd love to escort you to your seat. He leaned in close enough their noses were almost touching. I think you're going to have a lovely time here. Moira favored him with a curtsy and stepped up beside the Russian. Sue went to follow, but Tolliver leapt ahead of her. 
She stopped and said nothing, but he thought he could hear something like teeth grinding. Mr. Belial! Tolliver started, looking at Moira. Having her out of his reach was bad, but leaving this absolute creature between him and her was unlivable. I know you are a man of unbridled influence with connections to powerful people worldwide. Belial gave him an unimpressed slash of a smile and put his hand across his chest, palm up, prepared to bow and leave that wilted flower untouched. You are a person of considerable wealth as well, and I'm sure my brother respects you very much. Moira turned and gave him a begging look. Tolliver, Belial said under his breath. And of course, my father and Mr. Blackwell, who doesn't talk about anybody nicely or really at all, but he's mentioned you before and did so with a great deal of of admiration. And and Walther, Mr. Walther, he, he thinks you're just so impressive and well... So does Grady, and of course Mr. Ishtar, and... Belial's expression soured. Tolliver! He almost shouted. Tolliver might have rambled on if the guards hadn't shuffled a step forward each. Naming off a list of men who respect me more than you will take us through the apocalypse. Because every second, a new man is born. Tolliver swallowed and forced himself to not try adjusting his pants... They felt incredibly sideways somehow. Belial gave an unpleasant grin. You didn't mention the must, by the way, he said in a low voice. Belial leaned in close enough to whisper, Little Dunbarton got greedy, didn't he? Then, more harshly, Did you kill him? Tolliver shuffled and Belial backed away, rolling his eyes. Of course you didn't. He said, loud enough for everyone to hear, though only Sue might have caught the first part. Belial waved his hand. Go on, Tolliver, go inside, and don't sit on anything. I'll have the servants deal with you before we begin. Tolliver left without saying another word. He suddenly felt ten years old again and wanted almost desperately to go crawl back into his bed and sleep. The fabric on his chest seemed stuck to his skin no matter how hard he plucked at it. When Moira tried to comfort him, he shook her off and stormed toward the building. Sue watched them all go, still playing lamb and running a tongue over her teeth while she thought. It wasn't hard to make herself timid. That was a bucket dropped into a deep, full well. Though resisting the temptation to remain timid was harder. It reminded her of that first, last night. Blood and the feel of snow piling atop her, heavier and heavier. She hadn't been playing timid then, however. She'd been playing dead. Well, Miss Sue, Belial prodded. He too was playing a game with her. His part was to pretend not to be interested in her though now she knew she was as much a morsel to him as Moira. The feeling, again, was the same as all those years ago. Temptation, fear. Mostly, the sensation of being ushered inexorably forward to some bad conclusion fully out of her control. She wanted to leave, but she'd made a promise to Moira and, in any case, she really didn't have any better options. The road, as always, led forward.
I reckon you can take a hit, Sue said, tilting her head to fix him with her left eye. The grin he gave her was soft and knowing, full of teeth. Mr. Belial. Wonderful. He almost whispered, dipping into a deep bow and slowly flourishing his arms. Sue returned the gesture with a curtsy, and then followed him inside. Ducky rested his head against the glass, watching the last fingers of sunlight stretch and die over the rocks. Gato returned as the shadows took hold and night finally fell, bringing red moonlight in with him. She is beautiful tonight, he said, his body a dark stain against the greater red of the door. Ducky nodded, said nothing, and returned to the window. He rubbed the old scars on the back of his hand and thought of his last day on the coast. The burial on that high hill and the wad of now piss-soaked money hidden in his mattress. Ducky had planned on trying to dry it out somehow while everybody was gone. But Gatto had stayed behind with him and now Ducky was trapped in the back car with this freak show. You appreciate the moon a bit more now, little killer? Gatto asked in a chiding voice. He took his spot in the corner booth and curled up. Ducky's grandmother had owned a cat just like the man. Or rather, as she'd say herself, that cat had owned her. It was a feral, orange beast with black-flecked green eyes that would sit on her porch and rub its body against any leg it could find. Any attempt to pet the creature would net you a scratch, however. Unless, of course, you were Ducky's grandmother. I'm his pet, after all, she'd once said in a critical tone while Ducky nursed a bleeding hand. He'd wanted to kick the infernal thing, but his grandmother had glared him down cold. So he'd sat and mulled over murder instead of committing it. Or at least attempting to. Size and intent were poor sureties when it came to dealing with that angry orange tabby. Ducky traced the three lines of scar one a touch flatter than the others, and chuckled to himself. What is so funny? Gatto asked. Thinking about a cat I knew, was all Ducky said in reply. It's the end pensar en gatos, Gatto said after a short pause. He brings you balance. When Ducky turned to look, the man had adjusted so their faces were only a foot apart. This maneuver had been silent as the sand settling against the windows. Ducky swallowed and took a breath. You should tell me about your cat. How did he present himself? Proudly, Ducky blurted, surprising himself with his openness. The world was lucky to be under his feet. Ducky was quoting his grandmother, which reminded him of the sun rising over the bay. In the most distant corners of his heart, right then, he could feel something red rolling against an unfamiliar door. A gray-black thing that stank like the bones left after a house fire. 
This door shook and so did Ducky's body. Then the moment passed. Tell me more, Gato said. Ducky sucked in a deep breath, as though he just surfaced from a long dive. He blinked and steadied his breathing, feeling an electric tingle on his face. It, he was an orange tabby, Ducky said. He lived out in this forest of bushes between my grandma's house and the cliff, and every day or so he'd come out and, you know, strut around and sleep in the sun. Grandma put out scraps for him, dropped milk if we had it, and he'd eat it up like any house cat you'd seen. But you tried to pet him? Well, Ducky showed off the thin, triplicate scars. They caught the light of the rising moon and seemed freshly red against the darkness of his skin. His imagination ran away with him and he could feel, with great intensity, the pain of that tabby's claws. Oh, I have such marks as well, Gato said, revealing the back of his own hand. Five thick, ancient scars ran from the first knuckle of every finger to his wrist. These scars shared no light with the risen moon and were dull and white as grave cloth. What did you get for your scratches? Learned a lesson, I guess, if that's what you're asking, Ducky said. Gato laughed, a surprisingly light and normal sound coming from such an odd man. Cats are little kings and queens, you know, Gato said. Reitos y reinitas. Or so my own grandmother said a long, long time ago. He held the scarred hand at length and admired the damage. If they come across your path and you are kind to them, but they scratch you, it is not an act of malice, but a blessing. Gato clenched his fist and turned his palm over, flipping open his fingers and summoning an odd playing card from thin air. Ducky scoffed and gave the man's trick a few sarcastic claps. The card showed a half-human monster sitting in a throne. My blessing. Gato said, winking and disappearing the card with the same flourish. Card tricks? Ducky asked. Gato laughed again and shrugged with a nod. After a fashion, yes, he said. But you should think on your blessings, yes? Cats are fickle, but earnest. It makes people think they are deceptive, you know. But it is only people deceiving themselves and blaming the cats. I think this gatito really knew what a duck's worth. Yes? Ducky narrowed his eyes as Gato stood and stretched. Why'd you just say that? Ducky asked, standing himself. The sound of his grandmother laughing at the cat that had scratched his hand echoed in his ears. Beneath that, the resounding drumbeat of something red battering down a door. He shook his head. I do what I do. Gato said with a shrug. Answer my question, Ducky said, and Gato smiled. Are you looking for more scratches? I'm sorry to say, but you might not weather my claws so well. Ducky took a step forward and Gato smiled, put up his hands, and then slowly tilted his fingers to the window. But I think they are for better work tonight. You should get your rifle... Little killer. Ducky glanced back only once at Gato. The man's long legs had led him out the closest door in a second, and then stared out the window again in confusion. 
Feathers of dust curled in the distance like pink fire in the moonlight. Dust blew against the windows, harder now, making a sound almost like rain. Ducky fumbled around in the dark beside the priest's bag and found the dented binoculars the man had left behind for him to use, training them on the furthest scarlet curve of track. Lord in heaven, Ducky said once he saw what made the dust cloud. They run like dogs. Vasily marveled at the impossibilities of the structure around him, wondering at what hidden engineering was capable of holding aloft the curious gantries, stairs, and walks filling this Mr. Belial's mansion. The entry alone was a feat of construction onto which he was almost too unnerved to step foot. A bridge led from the simple, blocky stone stairs on which they had shared their introductions. From this austere beginning, an absolute impossibility crossed the five-meter drop into the dusty cart path below them. Four posts provided support for the bridge's suspension, but they were anchored into nothing. In fact, they seemed to be simply set atop the heavy, three-meter-long boards making up the span's decking. Thin steel wires stretched from these pillars in a fanning pattern typical of an extra-dosed bridge, but the attachments were in improper spots, and too few in number to provide support in the appropriate places. Still, the bridge held underfoot, and even bobbed and bounced in a way Vasily thought of as believable, almost as though his barest expectations had been predicted and then answered. Curious, he muttered to himself. Mr. Belial stopped walking beside him. Sue had maneuvered herself between Moira and the man and cocked his head. About my bridge? Mr. Belial asked, giving Vasily a polite smile. Vasily took a breath and tried to explain himself, but Mr. Belial interrupted with a raised hand. I assure you, the interior is much more interesting and we're running a touch late for the festivities. How about I come find you later and explain how everything works? Vasily shut the door on the third room and stopped and looked at his hand. Sue gave him a worried look from the front edge of the bridge and then disappeared into the house with Moira, who was similarly wrapped in wonder at the oddness of the house. Circles danced in his eyes for a moment as he tried to find a hard point on which to steady himself. Walls seemed to slide into place and click, and then he was outside the third room again, fingers resting on the knob. I believe I like that very much, if you don't mind. Vasily told Mr. Belial, who favored him with a nod and then led him into the house. Two men dead now, Vanyevich said looking off the prow with his compass in hand. Vasily wanted nothing to do with this ridiculous conversation, but at sea a captain stood beneath only God, and so here he was instead of at his wife's side. He could almost feel her fevered hands burning against his face. He took off his cap and looked it over, wishing she were here to lay a hand on his arm and calm his heart, to fix his cap. Steam thickened on Vasily's glasses as he breathed on them. The action was slow, methodical, practiced. He wiped them clean and set them on the table beside his teacup. A woman sat in shadow up to her neck across from him. Between him 
and the blackened bone door to the outside hallway. Around her spread an ossuary of animal bones in a great, broken curve. What might be a spiral if a defter hand had drawn it. He carries his home on his back. The woman said. She took her own cup from the table and dipped her hand into the darkness about her chin to drink. White lace clad the elbow he could see. An intricate pattern that continued across her thin chest and to the oddities about her torso. You are here now, so we are here. Where is your wife? Where is my sister? Two more arms rose from the darkness beneath the table and filled a cup for Vasily. A fourth added sugar. Light seemed errant here, accidental. Vasily found himself following Moira and Sue from a distance, at one floor up and then two somehow. Their path took them deeper into the circularities of Belial's home, until he could see only the barest glow of Sue's dress as the blackness swallowed it. He watched the new arms press out of Yumiko's flesh and tried to drag her back up to the surface. Bad luck was all they'd say to him. Rude, but what could he do? Vladivostok and a thousand cold miles of salt water lay behind them. America ahead, which promised so many things it could never properly deliver. Yumiko held his arm against her body and rubbed her cheek on his shoulder, ignoring the chill scratch of his jacket. You worry too much. Don't worry too much, she said, hand hot on his face. The skin around her eyes had darkened where the rest of her had gone pale. She smiled all the same. The knob turned only when he lifted his hand. The door opened only when he stepped away from it. Vasily understood after several aching hours of this same thing over and over again, turning away and then walking backward through the first door. Fog fell over his eyes and lifted to reveal the hallway, where he watched himself watching himself watch Sue. He shouted at the second, the first was too far to hear, and pointed at the second door. He held his ear before firing, hoping the noise alone would deafen the men and force them to rethink the black work they'd set themselves to. Warnings ignored. He took the leg of the largest of their number with a decisive shot to the kneecap. From this distance, he could not miss, and the nasty little pistol worked as intended. Screams rose from the ringing deafness that followed the shot. Feet scrambled for traction in a growing pool of blood. Vasily kneeled and pulled the mask off the man he'd shot, jamming his pistol into the man's throat and staring at the others. Venom stained his sleeves as she tried in vain to bite him, to get him away from her. No such luck, however. He knew this was what she wanted, but what was left of her? No. Left inside her, intended to fight to the death. When he carried her above decks, her light, slender body wrapped in stolen sailcloth, he did not allow them to see him weep. Don't go, Vasily, don't go. The sister said, wrapping her frail arms around him. Yumiko's twin had shared her pain and damned them both, not even knowing she was doing it. He shook her off and walked through the door, feeling something burning in his coat pocket. He touched it, the little envelope, and watched the color run out of the walls. Shifting crystalline purple faded to white and flaked, 
peeled. The fourth door opened and he stepped through into a massive, sweltering dining hall. Oddities surrounded and filled the table before him, both the food and the figures eating it defying the limits of his imagination. From their midst, Mr. Belisle stood and waved to Vasily, clearly surprised and pleased to see him. Mr. Tavarish? He said with a laugh. I'm so glad you could finally make it. A winding table of food, perhaps 50 feet long, sat between them. Rounds of meat and cheese adorned it, along with great flagons of ale and wine, and all the other things a simple man might desire. And more. More. Curious items for the decisive tongue. Cuts of human flesh, muscle, organ, and genital, braised, boiled, and cured. A child's head with the eyes and skull cap removed displayed on a bed of ice. A roasted woman stuffed with tied bundles of rosemary, thyme, and mint lay on a bed of onions and peppers. Expert butchery, ankle to throat, had rendered her to the bone along her left flank, where every cut of meat sat displayed, sliced, and labeled on a scaffold of silver platters. Pastel ice creams wreathed her shaved and branded head, whipped together in a rainbow bouffant. The meandering partygoers paused for only a moment to look at him, and then returned to their feast. Moira! Moira! Vasily shouted. Belial gave him a curious look. Is something wrong? He asked, gesturing to one of the seats beside him. Vasily stepped around the macabre buffet to see Moira giggling along to some story told by a woman sitting beside her. The woman was beautiful, deeply tanned, and barely dressed. Moira noticed Vasily looking and waved to him. Her eyes shone deeply purple. Mr. Tavarish, you made it! Something odd colored her voice. An unfamiliar childishness, but also a sort of distance. She sounded drunk on something stronger than wine. Yes, he said, stepping around the table. Beyond the pool of unclean white light in which Moira sat, he could see nothing but shadow and the faintest red glow of some arching support structure. It was like skin with light shining through. Oh, have a seat, Moira said, sweeping her hand over the table. She worked a hunk of meat off the thin, double-pronged fork she'd been eating with and massaged his arm in a way he didn't like. He laid his hand over hers and bent to speak into her ear. Are you all right? Vasily asked. Where is Sue? Where is Sue? Moira repeated, and the entire table began to laugh with her. She grinned at Vasily and pulled free another mouthful from the hunk of meat on her plate. Only then did Vasily realize she was dining on a roasted human hand. Her eyes flashed deeply violet as she bit into a whole finger joint, teeth shearing straight through the bone. Wickless felt the world swaying underneath his boots and did a few deft stutter steps to maintain his balance. So many hours had passed since his first drink he had no idea what time it might be, and he'd never been the sort to waste money on a watch. 
The bartender was a dour sort, but seemed happy enough to keep the pours coming. He hadn't even forced them to start paying off their tab yet, which was almost foolishly hospitable of him, given they were strangers. Wickless looked for an indiscreet window he could maybe jump out once he found somewhere to piss, which was itself proving difficult. Many of the back rooms were full of people, all awake and whispering to each other. With the redness of the moon, it all made for an unsettling walk through the dark hallways behind the bar. Finally, he found a staircase that led down into the undercarriage of the building, a cellar or the like. He tromped down the stairs and found a pillar to piss on, resting his forehead on it as he did so and accidentally knocking his hat onto the floor. Urine fluttered in an arc through the dusty basement as he tried to stumble and catch the damn thing. Or, at least, prevent it from rolling into the broad puddle now splashing up the sides of his boots. Fucking hat in my fucking boots. He mumbled, giving up on the hat and trying to find the post with his stream. It died out a moment later and he sighed and looked at the ceiling, bending to grab his hat before the piss puddle reached it. Then he saw something that made him lose his balance and stumble headlong into the base of the stairs. What the fucking... Two heads sat atop a rolling sheet of human skin, a male and a female. The woman's head was near enough he could see death in her eyes as some rough motion jarred her head back and forth. Rubbing his bruised forehead, he managed to roll onto his knees and get a better look. The skin was the woman's cut off every inch of her body and stitched crudely together with the same cord used to tie it to the corner of the stairs and a few other places. Lengths of chain lashed her body to an old chair to keep it kneeling upright. Behind her, the man lived, though his neck was sewn in amongst the flesh as well. Garvey? Wigless asked. The man's eyes were wide and focused on him, the expression of rage and lust so strong he could feel it almost tanning him. Beneath the rippling canvas of flesh, Garvey knelt naked with one hand on the dead woman's skinned breast and another on his dick. Even with their eyes now locked on one another, he never so much as took a breath or slowed as he handled himself. Oh, fucking lord, Wickless said, pushing himself back and nearly losing his footing. The entire floor was covered with tacky, partially dried blood. Wickless turned his head, vomited, and crawled up the stairs like a dog. In no way, shape, form, or fashion did he plan on relaying this information to anybody. His only option now was to get new clothes from the train or a clothesline, steal a horse, and outride any telegrams that might possibly connect him to this godforsaken job and whatever the fuck it was he'd just seen. How are they doing? A man's voice asked down the hall. Wigless cursed under his breath and ducked into the alcove over the closest door. Groups of men and women were leaving the rooms up ahead and filling the hallway. He clenched his eyes and tried to will himself sober. That scene in the basement had gotten him about halfway dry, but his head was still spinning. Drunk as skunks, but they still aren't out yet. Another man said, Should we keep going? Nah, the first man said. Other people murmured and shifted, and Wickless thought he could hear the light ring of metal amongst them. We've waited long enough, and we need to get plenty of distance between us and you know who if we're going to get help in time. 
We still don't know who's going to be able to help, a woman said. Her comment seemed to agitate the group as a whole. She seemed to want to say more, but was interrupted. Shut up, Willamette. All right, we move as one, the first man said. The others muttered in assent. All of them sounded old, weak even. Stick together and get as many people out as we can. Lord Belial's head. Another woman started to say. The crowd hushed her. We all know what he said, the man replied. And if the number applies, well, it applies. Though I don't know what he can do with all his white boys in that fucking house with him tonight. We kill these trained people and leave in their stead. That was the plan. Are we sticking to it? The crowd murmured in the affirmative. Wickless swallowed and pulled his gun from the holster, opening the cylinder as quietly as possible and feeding around into the empty sixth chamber. He clicked it shut and the door opened beside him, making him stumble slightly into a poorly furnished hotel room. Wickless caught his balance and met eyes with a woman in her fifties holding a chipped kitchen knife. Behind her, five other... Older people were struggling off chairs and couches that had been shoved haphazardly into the room. They were saying something about a commotion and realizing they were late, but all of them stopped talking when they saw Wickless leaning over at the waist in the doorway. The woman closest to him opened her mouth to scream and he shot her in the forehead and pulled the door shut behind him. Screaming erupted all at once throughout the house and he could hear footsteps thundering on the stairs overhead. The first crowd he'd nearly run into shuffled into view. All of them seemed at least 50 or older and brandished something sharp or heavy. Axes, refitted scythes, spring-handled cloth shears and anything else one might find in a workshed dangled from every hand. One of them pointed their finger at Wickless and spoke. Stay right there, young'un, he shouted. Wickless recognized the voice as the first man who'd spoken, the one that seemed in charge. He raised his pistol and fired three quick shots at him, hitting the man in the chest, somebody behind him in the face, and losing the last round in the plaster ceiling. The crowd screamed and collapsed into itself, some folks ducking for cover and others stumbling as they tried to charge him. The door he'd almost fallen through started to open, fired his last two rounds through it, heard somebody scream, and then ran for the stairs. Wickless dumped his empty shells as he ran, cursing under his breath and hunting for any route out of this place. All he found, of course, was the door to the basement. The basement where he'd left Garvey and that godforsaken skinned woman. He charged through the door without a second thought, figuring it had been so bright there had to be a window. He tried to load his revolver on the steps and tripped and slid down the last six stairs near on his chin. He turned onto his back and saw Garvey standing over him, clotted black blood dripping off the tip of his cock onto a spot precariously close to Wickless's cheek. Wickless slapped the cylinder closed on just two rounds and pointed it at Garvey's chin, keeping his elbows tight to his chest to keep from brushing the wet silhouette of Garvey's dick. Don't do anything, he groaned. The fall had bruised his chest up something fierce. I just want to leave. Garvey reached down and grabbed the pistol even as Wickless pulled the trigger. The man's eyes glowed dull purple. Wickless thought he was imagining the faint light until he saw it coloring the gun barrel. Click, 
click. Nothing. Shaking, he let Garvey have the useless thing. The man stood over him, lanky, naked, and blood-streaked, smiling like maybe Wickless's favorite little girls had sometimes seen him smiling at them. He put the barrel to his head and pulled the trigger. Click. Wickless flinched and took a series of panicked breaths. Both of them looked up the stairs when the older folks made the top landing. Downstairs! One of them called to the greater crowd. The other pointed a short-handled axe at Wickless and made to say something to them. A threat, maybe. But then he got a good look at Garvey and the words caught in his throat. Garvey pointed the gun up the stairs and fired two quick shots. Both men jerked and slumped to the ground, one right after the other. Garvey dropped the pistol near Wickless's head and walked off through the basement. What the hell? Wickless whispered, rolling to his knees and then dumping the spent cartridges. More people were already at the top of the stairs. He heard them cursing over the dead and then tromping down toward him as he crawled away beneath the sea of abused flesh. The closeness of the space forced him up against the naked muscle of the dead woman, and the smell wafting off the body nearly made him sick. Mother of God! The people on the stairs said. Wigless fumbled a fourth round into the chamber and dropped the fifth on the floor. He snatched at the brass and missed and watched the shine of it roll into the darkness. Is that Rachel? What in the fuck? Who did this? Curiously, It sounded like the man was asking if it might have been one of his own people. Had to have been one of them, another man said. Sickness colored his words, and a second later Wickless could hear the man vomiting. He still managed an insult. She had it coming, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Good lord. Boots were pouring downstairs now, but none of the people had spotted Wickless so far. Piles of shapeless clutter made a labyrinth of the oversized cellar, and though Wickless could see light streaking across the rafters overhead, he couldn't figure out how to get to it. He took a second to calm himself and quietly reopened the revolver, filling the last two chambers and listening to the people talk. The space seemed no less hostile to them, and every new person down the stairs reacted badly to the dead woman. It was good, at least that they made a lot of noise to cover his movement. Rachel, Wickless thought. He had to force images of Garvey out of his head before he got sick. He belly crawled under the rubbish, hearing feet shuffling just inches from him. They stopped and he stopped, slowing his breath to a crawl. Six people. He could kill six, sure, if he hit every shot. As it stood... He knew his limitations. And, just because none of them had shot at him yet, didn't mean they didn't have guns on them. Wickless finally found the only window on this side of the cellar. It was only six feet or so off the ground, and thin, but if he had just a few clean seconds, he could squeeze through the thing and be gone. He readied himself to move, but in the breath before he made his run, something shifted violently a few yards away knocking a stack of what sounded like books to the ground. What in the hell? A man said. The voice was so close, Wickless almost pissed himself. What is it over there? Somebody called. Something fell over. The man called back. I think it was Jim. 
Jim, you with me? He called to nothing. Wickless flinched when he heard something crunch in that direction. The cellar went quiet. He thought of Garvey and that woman and the awful purple glow coming from the man's eyes. Another crunch, though this time it was obviously wood. Wickless took a breath and stood slowly as possible, until his eyes crested the ridge of whatever was piled next to him. The nearest man was looking almost in the direction of the window, and it was clear he'd seen something. His head was locked in position, and he'd bent over at the waist with a knife at the ready. Wickless matched the man's careful stride step by step and came around the pile, only occasionally glancing toward the stairs. Men over there had started bringing down lanterns to aid in the search, but they were all so loud Wickless barely needed to sneak. Jim! Jim! The man asked. The hell's going on over there? Wickless cocked the pistol and kicked the man in the back of the knee. He fell, but managed to hold on to his knife. Shut up, Wickless hissed. He tapped the back of the man's head with the gun barrel. Give me that knife and don't move otherwise. The man fulfilled the request with an awkward twist of his body, though he seemed relieved when the knife was out of his grip. You don't have to do this, the man whispered. Wickless stabbed the man in the throat with his own knife and sawed out through the talking bits, leaving the man to kick and gurgle on the ground. Then he sprinted for the window, grabbing onto a pulley hanging just beside it and kicking the window free. There was no glass to the thing, just wooden slats, but it broke loud enough for the lanterns to come swinging his way. Wickless started pushing himself through the window and froze. A yard or so away, barely visible in the shaking lantern beams, was Garvey and, he presumed, Jim. Garvey's head had swollen up into a shape like a bullet and grown itself a whole mess of new teeth. His jaw opened all the way down into his slender, overly long chest, where Jim's lifeless body dangled by the neck. Wickless stared for what felt like an eternity, watching Garvey's eyes roll down out of his head until they were looking at each other. Then it swallowed a whole gullet full of blood, snapped off Jim's head and a few inches of his upper chest, and slipped up into a hole in the ceiling above. Wood groaned and creaked as his body disappeared. Wickless struggled through the window and scrabbled to his feet. There was screaming everywhere now, both the regular angry sort and the guttural dying animal sort. The bar he'd just escaped from was on fire, he saw, which he expected would be quite the revelation to the men who'd followed him. As he watched, a set of dresser drawers burst through a second floor window, followed by two men who leapt out onto the front porch awning. It was wood, so it held, but the foremost of them tripped, rolled, and fell over ten feet to the dirt. Given how they were dressed, he was sure it was Miskel and Don, with Don being the hapless one who'd fallen. Miskel dropped down after him, helped him up, and then they were off and running before Wickless had a chance to call out to them. Undeterred, he sprinted in their direction, watching as something low and loping broke out of the shadows beside the laundry house down the road and sprinted for Miskel. It had a man's shape, but it leapt like a wildcat and then the man was rolling. Don looked at him once, started to slow, and then decided to keep running. Wickless heard a pair of rifle shots, almost in tandem, 
and a great geyser of yellow burst out the side of the thing's oversized head. Miskel jumped to his feet almost immediately and sprinted off after Don. What in the world is going on? Wickless had almost managed to say when a screaming woman tackled him headlong from the side and sent the both of them rolling across the ground. He saw she'd been on fire recently and likely wouldn't ever recover. Her face was mostly gone on the right side. But she popped to her feet and rushed him all the same. Two shots dropped her to the ground and a third kept her from getting up. Light from the burning bar danced in her eyes as she reached for him one last time. The bar had caught in full now, tornadoes of flame guttering out the second floor windows. Figures still poured out the window Miskel and Dawn had fled through, all of them trailing flames of their own as they leapt screaming from the awning. Wickless heard more rifle cracks and saw more of the low, sprinting things collapsing and dragging themselves toward the town interior. He almost didn't react in time to another woman sprinting headlong at him, her body on fire and her eyes blind with pain. He shot her and then another woman behind her. This one he got in the hip and she rolled to the ground, screaming. The crowd was too thick, though, and his last bullet did little more than get a middle-aged woman to flinch and drop her knife before bowling him over. He'd killed her, he realized, which did little for him now that she was pinning him to the ground. Women stopped just shy of him, breathing heavily and smoking. Most of them were badly burned or still on fire in places. The closest reared back with an axe and brought it down on his face. Wickless screamed and turned aside, but the blade only nicked his ear. When he opened his eyes, the women were screaming on the ground. Men in gray suits were gnawing at their faces with glowing yellow mouths, tearing away smoking hunks of bone and flesh and swallowing whole mouthfuls with their chins cocked up like birds. The closest woman seemed to point at him, urging the creatures to turn and notice as he slowly pushed himself from beneath the dead woman. But the thing opened its round, oversized jaw and chewed off the front of her skull. smoke curled around the horse's rotten hooves. At first, it was no different than the loose grit of the valley, but it soon thickened to a poisonous yellow that solidified and made forms of itself. Arms, legs, sightless eyes, and then the skull that held them, rolling itself back and forth over the ground like a tide-swept corpse. Back and forth as more details emerged. Teeth and lips gnashing and then sucking for breath as the organs pulled themselves together. Then all was whole again, and only the simplest forms remained as the must swept himself to his feet. Clothing loomed itself back together thread by thread. Stitching writhed like worms around his shoulders and hips as he turned to the rider and cleared his throat. (coughs) Why are you still out here? He asked turning his head and spitting a lungful of his own essence onto the ground. It turned the sand neon green and then faded with a puff of acrid smoke. (sighs) Isn't your whatever in there? It's beyond my reach for the moment, the rider said. 
No use pushing ahead until what's done is done. The must gave him a disgusted look and shook himself clean. It took some doing to push his hair back where he liked it. <clears throat> Who are you afraid of? Belial? He asked, looking at the town. His dig boys and the Pinkertons cut golden streaks through the night air. He could feel the townspeople between all of their teeth, but each meal felt diminished somehow. Drained, already fed on. Not particularly, the rider said, spurring his horse on at a trot. The must groaned and started walking briskly to keep the pace. Though he and I are aware of each other. How do you know he won't just keep your... Whatever it is you're looking for, the must asked. His earlier prying had only irritated the rider, but persisting was the must's nature. Giving, sharing especially, rarely interested him. If the rider wanted something, he wanted it more. Simple as that. He still didn't know what he'd do with the rest of Blackwell's broken ship if he collected all of it. He could only use one pile without obliterating himself completely but having it might get Blackwell to speak with him again. Leverage was a fine enough reason. Ownership, the finest. We've spoken before, the rider said. The man knows me and understands my ways. He don't give it up without issue. You sound fairly sure of yourself, the must muttered. How do you know? The rider snorted and spurred the horse on at a trot too fast for the must to keep up with. In seconds, the distance had grown great enough the must merely threw his hands up and slowed to a regular walk. Cool, blue desert spread endlessly to the rocks on the horizon and the low, long river to the east. Something bothered at his tongue and he pulled free a lump of smoking hair tied in a braid. He picked it free and flicked it away, resigning himself to walking. Vicky was of the very, very strong opinion he had not been brought to Mr. Belial's house in order to sell a typewriter. Loose blue nets of catwalk, hallway, and overpass seemed to float through the air beneath the wavering ceiling. That itself reminded Vicky of a thin seashell held up to the horizon at sunset, though the light beyond pulsed with the steady rhythm of a heartbeat. He looked back the way he'd came and sighed. Hello? He asked. Is anybody there? A door sat at the far end of the hallway he'd walked through, though it was not the same hallway anymore. It reminded him of his childhood home in a way he didn't appreciate, and so he let himself fall away completely. He closed his eyes and began reciting the litany of the Blackwell automatic typewriter. When he'd finished, 
The hallway showed itself laid out as when he'd arrived. Spectacular, a man said behind him. Vicky turned to see a tall blonde man with tan skin and violet eyes standing in front of a mirror. The mirror towered over the both of them, reaching nearly three stories to the ceiling, while only being about a yard wide. A hulking, purplish figure was reflected in the mirror behind the man. Vicky cleared his throat and approached this person like any other client, offering his hand and smiling. Victor Mellon, hey, sir, Vicky said. Blackwell Industries Sales, a pleasure to meet you. Likewise, the man said, shaking his hand. Belial, void of Yith. Welcome to my home. Belial turned and walked toward the mirror and Vicky followed. Realizing the mirror was not a mirror, but rather a lengthy staircase that widened so gradually it merely seemed flat, he rubbed his forehead. This trip had become a real headache. You can leave that right there, Belial said, tapping a credenza Vicky had thought was just marks in the wall a moment ago. It had the same stained purple-black color as the rest of the place, hues that swirled and mixed like marbling. Are you sure, sir? Vicky asked. I don't... I mean, I am responsible for all Blackwell Company equipment. Blyle stopped walking and tipped his head to Vicky. Then consider it purchased, he said, raising a finger when Vicky started walking. He extended his hand, eyes flashing deeply purple. On my word, you'll receive full value in payment. It includes a typing book, two spare ribbons, and other assorted parts, Vicky said and retails for just $100 American. That's exactly all the Blackwell Company needs in compensation for that machine. Vicky took Belial's hand and the man grinned ear to ear. Deal, he said. Nothing special followed the shake, though Belial's hand felt especially warm and almost feminine in its softness. He motioned for Vicky to follow him, and Vicky obliged. In just a few short steps... Belial took him to the edge of a banister and pulled at a ring of shadow on a distant wall. A clasp snapped in front of them and a door opened onto a massive ballroom, filled to the gills with all manner of people. Though on closer inspection he couldn't tell which were real and which were part of the clever mural covering the floor. Many of the people below hardly seemed to be people at all. In fact, he hoped much of what he saw were mere optical illusions. Eight-legged slugs covered in human faces gallivanted in fine silk stockings. A man looked up to the balcony and gave Belial a slight bow. Look was generous in this case, as the man had no eyes and a pill-shaped gray head split along the middle by a fat-lipped, vertical mouth. Still, there were others such as this one and many more who seemed perfectly human save for the slightest defect. Eyes painted on? Too many shoes on those legs? Is it a crowd or just one person? Despite all their presentations, each seemed drawn at least occasionally to the young woman twirling about in a blue silk dress at the far edge of the dance floor. They pressed against each other to jockey for her company, but she spurned them all to continue dancing alone. Once they felt fully dismissed, their eyes turned to the odd statue in the center of the room. It depicted a slight woman in a long, elaborate dress, her hat pulled so low Vicky couldn't see her face. Marble swords 
Sabres, he thought. Pierced her stomach and leg, and more were frozen mid-strike over her head and back. Amongst those two were clubs and sticks, little knives the size of fingers as well, and a straight razor that crossed her lips. The flat of its tip hung just left of her nose. She seemed to care little for these injuries, however, and was preoccupied with the fragile baby bird she held aloft in her hands. From this vantage, it might be an offering or a simple release. Her hands were modeled such that she seemed both hesitant and protective, unsure as to whether she might release the thing. What is all this, Mr. Belial? Vicky asked, turning to his host. The man smiled down at the floor, though Vicky couldn't tell if his eyes were on the girl in blue, the young woman in stone, or something else entirely. A party, Victor, he replied, favoring Vicky with that same smile. We're celebrating the end of the world. And with that, he led the young salesman to the dance floor. party is now in full swing. Battered, separated, and never approaching the brink of ecstatic insanity, our travelers will be tested in full before the morning sun rises. On the next episode of Sin Carriers, a young girl named Sulame reminisces on her clan's immigration to America. Moira beholds a host of wonders and curiosities as Lord Belial's guest of honor. Tolliver, meanwhile, finds his invitation rescinded. In town, the drivers find the hospitality they've been shown cuts both ways. Build over and Elam watch a night of horrors unfold beneath them. Ducky is put into a precarious position and Gato finds a lost possession returned to him. What deeper machinations fuel the madness in Lord Belial's town? What is this thing Garvey has become? And is it all that different from what he was to begin with? And just exactly what has happened to Suleme? You may find the answers to these questions and more on the 10th episode of Sin Carriers. Feast. And until next time... As always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. Sound design, original music, and foley by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright, WSF Productions 2023.